Time has produced some of the most incredible humans to walk the face of this planet we call home. People who've endured the most harrowing ordeals, pushing their body to the extreme. Whether it's plane crashes, abduction, jungle survival, or even medical anomalies, we explore them all. Who are these people? What happened? Where are they now? Join us to find out. Not me, not today podcast. Hey guys, it's Leisha and Kenny here, and you're listening to the first episode of Not Me, Not Today podcast. Hello, thanks for listening wherever you are in the world. So, Leisha, what's the story? I'm going to tell you the story of Juliane Kupke. This was the first survivor story I've read as a child. I was like eight in school and so fascinated by it that it set off my passion for survivor stories. This one is such a good story and one that many people will know. We're going to cover her upbringing, the incident, the relationship with her father afterwards, and what Yuliani has been doing with her second chance at life. Hmm, Sounds good. Let's get right into it. Now, before we start, I just want to say that I'm going to try my best to get these people's names correct and how to pronounce them. This is what I've heard it pronounced as before. Yuliani Kupke. However, if it is wrong, I do apologise. I tried. That's fair. I want to start off by telling you all about her parents, because they really do factor into a large part of her life. Her parents were German, and their names were Maria and Hans Wilhelm Kupke. They were married and complete polar opposites. Maria, her mother, was elegant, kind, gentle and compassionate. She was a major animal lover and had a particular passion for birds. She was so impassioned by birds that she made it a career choice and became an ornithologist. Juliane was super close to her mom and saw her as a bit of a role model. There were a few photos I found of her online, which I'm just going to show Kenny now. And she just seems like such a happy person. She just has one of those faces that really comes to life when she smiles. Yeah, very animated smile. She's also holding uh, like an interesting looking bird in this picture. Hans, her father, wasn't as open and loving, being described by Juliane as dark and emotionally awkward, easily angered. He was a real strict disciplinarian who was very much the man of the house, but again, this is the 1950s, so I'm not shocked. I also read something about him going to Peru for his own incredible journey, straight after World War II, but I never really could find the details. Her father, however, did have a much softer side to him and was also extremely passionate about nature. So much so that, like Maria, he also made it a career and was a biologist. Her parents married in Lima, Peru in 1950. It's the capital city, right? It is, and that's where they lived. Hans was 10 years older than Maria, and apparently despite their major personality differences, their unified love of nature made them a perfect match. Juliane described them as inseparable, in love, and like a fairy tale. They were both world-renowned scientists, heading up a department each in the National History Museum in Lima, frequently hosting dinner parties and using their house as a stopping point for scientists in the area. Oh, wow. Interesting conversations at those parties, I'm sure, with all those minds in one place. Yeah. I have found a quote from a visitor that I feel really gives such a good insight into what their house was like. Cool. Ah, the intensity of these meetings at Casa Humboldt, over a cup of hot tea and German pastries. These were heated, passionate exchanges. Our conversations were uttered in a quick-fire mixture of German and Spanish, plus the Latin names of birds and other creatures. As the evening went on, Maria's normally pale cheeks would become rosy and her eyes aglow with excitement. Oh, the anecdotes of those gatherings. Well, according to Juliane, they were so inseparable that they worked together in the Museum of National History. 
and when they went to event functions, they would always have to be seated next to one another. Apparently, they would speak to people individually, but it was their thing that they would always eat together. They even had a species of lizard named after them. Microphilus cupcaeolum. And now say that three times really fast. I struggle to t- say it <laughs> once. Yuliane was born on the 10th of October, 1954. She was an only child, but grew up with a pet parrot as her sibling. His name was Tobias, and she said that he used to be very jealous of her as a child because he was there before her, and her parents naturally gave more attention to Yuliane when she was born and growing up. However, with her parents being such esteemed scientists, animals, and nature were always going to be a part of Yuliane's life. Her mother sent a letter to a friend in Germany telling her that Yuliana had a herbarium at five years old. What is that exactly? I had to Google that, and a herbarium, for those who aren't sure, is a collection of preserved plant specimens, usually for the purpose of studying. Okay. She grew up going to a German international school in Lima, but in 1968, when Yuliana was 14, they all moved to Panguana in the Amazon rainforest which I looked up how far from Lima, Peru it is, and it's 371 kilometers, or 230 miles away. It was in the dead-ass middle of nowhere. Wow. Now, Panguana is an actual place today, and we will discuss that later on, but I need to describe this place to you when they got there, because it's just wild and must have been quite the change for Yuliane. It's also named after a local bird. I'll put up pictures on our Facebook and Instagram of this hut, because it really is basic and must have been quite the adjustment. There were jungle vines, birds, howler monkeys. It must have been crazy to just move there. Imagine waking up and looking out to see all of that. I know. Well, when they first arrived, it was a wooden shack. A full-on wooden shack on stilts with palm tree leaves for a roof that had been abandoned by locals. It also had a little side shack, which was a kitchen-type room surrounded by dense Amazon jungle. It had books, no running water, and they had a routine of shaking out their boots for poisonous spiders each morning. Nice. So the plan was that they were going to stay in Panguana for five years, which didn't exactly go to plan, but I'll get to that in a few minutes. When Yuliana was there, she essentially became a jungle child and learned a lot. She spent her mornings being homeschooled by her parents. Her dad taught her maths, and then she would join them in the jungle afterwards. Yuliane said that her parents were workaholics and she would spend much of the time learning survival skills or learning about the jungle and everything within it. For the average teenager, that would be their worst nightmare. I bet Yuliane was in her element, though. It really does sound like something from Jumanji, doesn't it? (laughs) So it was here in Jumanji that she had all the experiences she would need to later survive in the jungle. Things like picking up your feet to not trip over roots and identifying plants and animals. One of the stories that Yuliane told when I watched her documentary was about expeditioners near her camp. She was about 15 and there were a team of three American expeditioners exploring the jungle nearby. One of them had a gun go off accidentally and hit him in the leg. They sent the third man for help. The worst place to get injured, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, three days later, he shows up at the raggedy shack in the middle of nowhere. And when Yuliana's father asked how he found them or survived, he said that he stuck to the river and water sources because if he followed them, they would leave to a village or settlement eventually. Something Yuliana would never forget, an advice that her father repeated to her. Whilst they were living in the middle of nowhere, her father put in an application for Panguana to be made into a nature reserve, which was subsequently denied. Between that and the educational authorities, not thrilled at Yuliane being homeschooled, relatively unmonitored, 
in the middle of the jungle, they were forced to move away only 18 months after they got there. Her parents were less than ecstatic about it. So they just packed up and went back to Lima? Yeah, Yuliane then went back to her school in Lima, Peru and rejoined her friends. She studied for her exams and just got to be a normal teenage girl for a little while again. During this time she was home, her parents hadn't forgotten or given up on their Panguana project. Instead, they saw being forced to move back to Lima as a hiccup and, soon, and as soon as Yuliane finished her exams, they intended to go back. Pining for Panguana. They were. Her father put in an application for it to become a research centre. This got approved, but in 1972, after the incident happened. The cupcakes were waiting on Yuliane to finish her exams so they could all pack up as a family and relocate as to this shack in the middle of nowhere, this remote location that they intended on converting to a nature reserve or research station. Yuliane wanted to attend her graduation and prom after her exams because, well, why not? I mean, you've worked so hard to study and to graduate, you want to at least be able to enjoy the celebration, to be a normal teenager, before you're made to bippity-boppity-boop yourself back into the jungle like Jane from Tarzan. <laughs> so her mother agreed to let her stay for those things, but her father had some work and preparation to do in Panguana. He went ahead of them. The plan was that Yuliane and her mother attend the graduation, Yuliane gets to go to the ball, and they all fly over to be together as a family for Christmas. They all live happily ever after. The plan changed from them flying out on the 19th of December to flying out on the 24th, 1971, Christmas Eve. Yuliane attends her graduation and her prom wearing a lovely patterned dress. It was apparently blue, but all the photos I could find were black and white. She wore her hair up, she had a date, just like a normal typical teenager. You're trying to book a flight for Christmas Eve though, and as you can imagine, the tickets are like gold dust. So Maria eventually gets the last two tickets she can get anywhere with Lanza Airlines. Hans was less than pleased about it because they'd had a terrible reputation with two crashes prior. One of them in 66 and the other one only a year before Yuliane and her mother were due to take to the sky. There were no survivors in the first crash and only one survivor in the second, the co-pilot. Oh no, Lanza. What planes were these? Now I looked further into this and I did look into the aircraft that they flew on and it was pretty damn interesting. So I found out that these planes, the Lockheed L-118A Electra, were built between 1957 and 1961. They made 170 in total. Incidentally, the plane crash that had happened the year before with Lanza had been the exact same model of plane Yuliane and her mother were destined to board. I wanted to see if there was anything to that. The plane, if you Google it, looks like one of those planes from Catch Me If You Can. The version I saw was silver and navy and had short wings. It has two propeller engines on each wing, a bit like a bumblebee in that it has short wings but packs a punch in power. After a few crashes, they discovered that there was an engine mounting fault. The engine sat slightly at a weird angle on the mount and this was identified as a potential reason for the crashes. So they did a design change. But when they did the design change, it was too expensive. No one wanted it and it was discontinued. But they kept the planes that had already been bought out there unchanged. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Now, naturally, if I'm halfway down the research rabbit hole, I'm going to go the whole way. I was so interested by this but I, that I went diving a little further. 
Of those 170 planes that were made, 58 of them had been written off because of crashes and other incidents. 34%. 23 were legit crashes that happened between 59 and 2003. That's 7% in heavy detailed crashes. I personally just find that mind-blowing. Unbelievable. Also, check out this gem of a fact find. The plane Amelia Earhart flew off in and poofed into thin air was a customised Lockheed Electra. Aha. She was on her way to the mysterious Howland Island, apparently, when, uh, when that happened, and that was it. She was gone. Well, that's so another story. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy. Anyway, back to the story, and just to recap. Hans is back in his shack in the middle of the jungle, and Yuliana and her mother are on their way to the airport to board a flight out on Christmas Eve with Lanza Airlines something Hans really isn't happy about. They get to the airport and the flight was delayed by seven hours due to various different issues like a backlog of delayed flights and poor weather. Other flights had been cancelled and the airport was just chaos with long queues and tired, frustrated people. <clears throat> Christmas Eve in an airport, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, eventually, and after a really long wait, their flight was called to board. She said that they felt really lucky and relieved to be boarding the plane. They felt like they were the lucky ones getting to be with their families in time for Christmas. Families with children finally going home for Christmas. They boarded at 11am. Yuliane was in the window seat, 19F, second to last row at the back of flight 508. Beside her was her mother and a businessman who was in the aisle seat and apparently fell asleep when they first took off. The next part I will read as an excerpt from Yuliane's experience on the plane because only she can really give it justice. Okay. I also want to point out that this is the 70s and you dress nicely for plane journeys. None of these shorts, flip-flops, semi-opaque shawls of your bikini top type deal. Yuliane was wearing a nice white cotton dress to just above her knees. Two white simple slip-on shoes, a wristwatch and a ring. It was only meant to be a 50 to 60 minute flight. They had just finished handing out trolley snacks in the cabin, which is about to become a Yahatsi barrel with all the snacks and luggage. Anyway, I'll start. My mother was anxious, but I was okay. I like flying. Ten minutes later, it was obvious that something was very wrong. There was heavy turbulence and the plane was jumping up and down. Parcels and luggage were falling from the lockers. There were gifts and flowers and Christmas cake flying around the cabin. When we saw lightning around the plane, I was scared. My mother and I held hands, but we were unable to speak. Other passengers began to cry and weep and scream. My mother very calmly said, That is the end. It's all over. Those were the last words I ever heard from her. Oh my God. The plane jumped down and we went into a nosedive. It was pitch black and people were screaming. And then the deep roaring of the engines filled my head completely. Suddenly the noise dropped and I was outside the plane. I was in a free fall, strapped to my seat bench and hanging head over heels. The whispering of the wind was all I could hear. I felt completely alone. I could see the canopy of the jungle spinning towards me. Then I lost consciousness and remember nothing at all of the impact. Later I learned that the aircraft broke into pieces two miles, 3.2 kilometers if you will, above the ground. I woke the next day Christmas Day and under her seat no longer strapped in and looked up into the canopy and my first thought was I have survived an air crash. The crash had happened around 1.30pm on Christmas Eve. 
I couldn't really feel anything. It was like being wrapped in cotton balls. With a lot of effort, I could only get onto my knees. Then everything turned black again. I couldn't see very well with one eye. It took half a day until I could get up and walk. I shouted out for my mother, but I only heard sounds of the jungle. I was completely alone. I searched a full day and then realised no one was there. I had broken my collarbone and had some deep cuts in my legs, but my injuries weren't serious. I realised later that I had ruptured a ligament in my knee, but I could walk. She now found herself in the middle of the jungle with minimal injuries. A missing shoe and she'd lost her glasses. She was short-sighted so she decided to use the foot with the shoe on to test the ground beneath her as she moved forwards. She could hear planes above her searching for the crash site, but the jungle was so dense that it had swallowed the plane, leaving virtually no trace of the crash, and she couldn't see through the trees. That must have been terrifying. But her instincts are kicking in now by the sounds of it. Well, in survivor mode, and while she was still at the crash site, she rummaged for food. She found a bag of hard sweets and a Christmas cake covered in mud and dirt. She picked up the cake and tried to eat it, but she said it was so dirty that she left it. In hindsight, she wished she'd had taken it with her. So now she's tapping her way through the jungle, knowledgeably, worried about the danger that lurked there. Snakes were her main concern, posing as dried leaves. Mosquitoes were another large concern, and the diseases that they could bring. And there were also piranhas, crocodiles, poisonous frogs, bugs, and leeches. She was searching around the crash site when she heard a faint trickling noise. It took her a moment to place the sound, but she followed it to a small creek because, as we discussed earlier, she knew that if she followed the water, she'd be more likely to hit a settlement of some sort. Ah, it's all coming together. Well, the weather was warm and humid during the day, but this is the rainforest, so it also lashed rain several times a day and night. At night, it was freezing cold and she didn't have anything but this little dress and a single shoe. She couldn't sleep at night and described the rain as freezing bullets pelting her skin. The rain was so intense that none of the leaves could have provided any relief or shelter and it just soaked everything. On the third day, whilst following the water, she came across a propeller engine in the middle of the creek. On the fourth day, she recognised the call of a king vulture and knew that bodies were close by. She found a bench with a woman and two men, three feet deep, head first in the ground. It was her second time seeing a dead body, but she'd been a small child when she saw her first and didn't really remember. A lot of people, maybe even especially kids, would have gone into some kind of like shock at this point. Yeah, and she was terrified one of them was her mother. So she picked up a stick to check her feet and found the toenails were painted. Her mother never painted her toes. She felt relieved and then instantly felt guilty that she'd felt relief. Now she says that she knew logically it couldn't have been her mother because her mother was beside her, but she said she couldn't help it and she was just scared. Naturally. On the fifth day, she recognised another bird call. This time she recognised it as a Hotsin bird that liked large bodies of water, her mother's teachings. So she left her little creek to follow the call of this bird and bingo, it led her to a river. Oh man, it's like she'd subconsciously been training for this her whole life. I know, right? Yuliani decides that she's going to get into this river and float her way down it. She's weak, she's a ruptured knee ligament, broken collarbone, gashes in her arm and leg, a single shoe, survived an air crash, 
finished her sweets and can't find her glasses. She's in a real state at this point. Well, in one article I read, it sounded like she was having some conflicting feelings with her knowledge. Because apparently some of the animals like monkeys and brock deer got kind of close and were surprisingly tame, which gave her the hope that there might be a settlement nearby because they seemed almost used to humans or had never encountered them at all. But then she would see trees in the river, which usually meant it wasn't a well-traveled river, which would knock her confidence and hope a little bit. She said she tried to block those thoughts out. She gets into the river because not only for the above reasons, but it was actually safer for her to get into the river than stay out of it. Yuliana is now floating down the river with caiman crocodiles and piranha, but this isn't her first Amazon rodeo and she knows that the piranha weren't really a problem. What? Well, apparently in flowing, large flowing bodies of water, they do little harm and aren't the frenzied killers they're made out to be. Yeah, they're really portrayed in that way in everything. Well, Cayman crocodiles did concern her a little bit, but she discovered that as she floated down the river, they would initially take to the water curious, but then swim away from her. She said she could feel them scurrying underneath her at times. Oof. While she floated down the river, she said she felt like it was all so surreal, and that she was in a parallel universe. A day or two later, she saw a boat and thought it was a mirage or hallucination, until she touched it. According to Yuliane, when she touched it and realized it was real, a huge surge of adrenaline shot right through her. She stood up and looked just past the boat to find a little pathway leading to a tiny shack with palm tree leaves for a roof. She found a motor there and a liter of gasoline covered with a plastic tarp. Oh wow, any sign of civilization then would have been overwhelming at that point. Yeah, well now you're not gonna go through the Amazon jungle with gashes in your limbs, expecting them not to be the new mag maggot nursery, and Yuliane was no different. The gash in her arm was filled with maggots, which she knew had to be removed. Having seen her dad do this to her dog when she was a child for the same reason, and apparently it was even the same fly, Yuliane took the gasoline and tried to smother and drown them, but found whilst in the drowning panic, they tried to bury themselves deeper into her arm. Ooh. So she broke a ring that she was wearing and had to dig them out using the two halves. When that didn't work, she used a stick. And when that didn't work, she used her fingers. She picked out 35 maggots. Whoa. I know. Yuliane decided to spend the night there for a sheltered rest, but also in the hope that whoever used the shack would come back soon. She actually slept in the sand because the ground was too hard, but retreated back under the shelter the next morning when it started to rain. There were poisonous frogs around that she would try to catch and eat. Apparently, they aren't usually bad enough to kill someone, so she wanted to eat it. But because A, she was so weak, and B, she couldn't see, she short-sighted and lost her glasses, she wasn't able to catch them. She commented on the documentary that she's thankful she couldn't catch them, because although they usually don't kill a human in normal health, she was weakened, so it was very well it might have killed her. Did she not take the boat? No. On January 3rd, 1972, when she woke up, she decided she didn't want to steal the boat because she's a well-mannered badass and waited <laughs> for somebody to come by. And they did. That very day. Side note, that shack was apparently a fisherman's shack and was visited about once a month. Oh, so lucky. So lucky. Yuliane described hearing their voices like hearing the voices of angels. Naturally, they were just as shocked to find her. The search for survivors had been given up two days prior. So here was this blonde haired, 
fair-skinned, blue-eyed girl in the middle of the rainforest in a battered white dress and one shoe, semi-soaked from floating down the river for the past few days. Imagine their faces when they found her. Well, at first, they apparently thought she was some sort of water goddess who had blonde hair, blue eyes, fair skin, who was half woman, half dolphin. <laughs> That's tremendous. But when they, she explained what happened, they immediately connected her with the crash because they'd heard about it on the radio. They took her on a seven-hour canoe ride down the river to a lumbar station. The next day, an American female pilot, Jerry Cobb, offered to fly her to the hospital, which I read in a couple of places was actually an American missionaries camp in Pucallpa in her little two propeller plane. Fair play to her for getting back on the plane. Can you imagine the feeling of just seeing one? I wouldn't get on it. I mean, the chances of it happening again would be very slim, but the feeling would take over anyone, I'm sure. Terrifying. Well, it was here she was reunited with her father and she learns that she's the only survivor of the plane crash. Oh, did they ever find Maria's body or mother? Yes, they did. They found her mother's body on January 12th, which I will touch on later because it's just tragic. Oh. Also, according to something else I read, her father wasn't worried when he first heard about the plane crash because he'd forbidden them from boarding the plane and didn't think that they would ever dare disobey him. She ended up having to give them directions to find the crash site because remember, it had swallowed the plane whole and the wreckage site spanned 5.8 square miles and when they initially looked for her, it was the largest rescue operation by land or by air in Peruvian history. That's some pretty dense jungle. Wow. What happened when she got back? Her fame exploded, naturally. It was a media frenzy. She gave an interview that month in Stern magazine. Her father had sold the rights to it. Getting an interview was so exclusive that allegedly a journalist even posed as a nurse to get an interview. The world could not get enough of her story. People all over the world were writing her letters and she just couldn't understand why people would bother to write to her. Did she just continue life like normal? Well, by March she was back in school. Her plan was to study for two years for a German university entrance exam. She loved being back in school and having her friends and routine again. She needed that routine. She had lost her mother and her world had been turned upside down. But she was still being hounded by the media. I thought it was dogs hunting me, she said. They terrorised her father trying to get interviews and it got so bad that he had a panic attack, had enough and sent her to live in Germany with his sister and mother, who interestingly enough, were a journalist and writer. Mm. Well, Juliane was pretty pissed. She was enjoying life doing what she wanted and yet again being made to move under instruction of her parents. But this time she was going alone. Her parents were German, but she'd been born in Peru and didn't really know Germany. So he just sent her packing? Yeah. Why would he do that? She felt that her dad sent her away because she looked so like her mother. He just couldn't bear to look at her anymore. It broke his heart and he feared for her safety. If anything was to happen to Juliane, it'd be like losing his wife all over again. To be honest, Juliane really does look like a mother. And as I said, I will put up these pictures so you can see it for yourselves. Juliane was in Germany, living with her grandmother and aunt, within the year. She spent the first anniversary of the crash there. Hans never really recovered and suffered from a broken heart for the rest of his days. Juliane's relationship with her father, which was never the strongest to begin with, declined and they had two years of virtually no contact. He spent the first year alone in Panguana. And then where did he go? Well, Hans left his job at the Museum of Lima after three years without saying goodbye to anyone and moved to Hamburg, Germany. 
he never went back to Peru. Hansa created the dream paradise that he'd loved with his wife and he just couldn't bear being there without her. Even when he got to Germany, he was built into a routine and was like a machine. That's so sad. Well, this will break your heart. So shortly after Hans died in 2000 at age 87, Juliane went through his belongings and found a candle named the Panguana candle that he lit every year on the anniversary of the crash, the official date for Maria's death. She also found out that her mother didn't immediately die in the crash, but lay alive, paralyzed for a couple of days. Hans kept that information hidden from Juliane for over 40 years. What? How did he know that? Well, when he went to identify her body, she was much less decayed than the other bodies, especially given the climate. The level of decay was suspected to be two weeks behind others. It's possible that she passed away as late as January 6th. And just to put that into perspective regarding timelines, Juliane was found on the 3rd. Also, according to one article, 14 other passengers are thought to have shared a similar fate to Maria. That's actually horrific. It really is. When Juliane's aunt died, she was cleaning out her things and found a letter to the aunt from Hans forbidding Juliane from returning to him in Lima. It was dated 1972. She was upset, but she felt that it came more for a place of hurt and heartbreak than a place of hate or resentment. All the physical things she went through, but think of the mental toll that would actually take on someone. Right. She never received any psychological help. It just wasn't a thing like it is now. But whilst Juliane was living in Germany... She went to the University of Kiel, like her parents, to study biology and received her doctorate from Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. She graduated in 1980 and returned to Panguana in 1981. She spent 18 months back in her old jungle childhood home where she identified 52 bat species. Later publishing her thesis in 1987, titled Ecological study of a bat colony in the tropical rainforest of Peru. She went back there. That's so cool. So lovely and brave. She later met and fell in love with a biologist named Eric Diller, who specialised in wasps. She married him in 1989 at the age of 35. Later, she returned to Panguana with her husband in 2000, after her father died and adopted her parents' passion and responsibilities. She expanded the research station from 450 acres to 1,730 acres and discovered a load of species in the ecosystem where she stayed for a few years. I have a list. 500 different species of trees and plants, 400 ants, 350 birds, 52 bats, 80 mammals, 50 species of frogs, 280 butterflies and that excludes the bugs which I do not have a list for thankfully because we'd be here all day I'm sure but anyway in 2011 they went back to Panguana to try and get it approved as a nature reserve and write up the papers to stop any developments nearby which was granted for them Juliane got a team to help in Panguana with the research station and conservation wow What's she doing now? Well, as of 2012, she works in the University of Munich as a librarian in zoology, but plays a heavy part in the research and nature reserve of Panguana. She returns every year and confesses that she and her husband are such workaholics that they never had children. Now, there is a tomb in Pucalpa where the bodies of 60 people from the crash are buried. Some of them have photos, some don't, but there's also a map and plaster of the crash site and the route Juliane took back to the shack. 
There's also apparently a halfway market between Panguana and Pucalpa named The Door, which has a door of the plane from the crash in the window. The owner has apparently put a sign on it and named it Yuliane's Door. Oh, that's so cool. Now, naturally, there have been movies about this story with varying degrees of success. The first film was made in 1974, less than three years after the incident, made by Italian filmmaker Giuseppe Maria Scotese. Giuliane actually collaborated on it a bit, but I'm using that term lightly. It was released in English as Miracles Still Happen with a British actress named Susan Penhaligon, but Giuliani was very unhappy with it. It was sensationalized and fake. She was portrayed as this scared girl who bumbled her way through the jungle afraid of everything. There was also a scene where she befriends a baby monkey and had to leave it behind her. It was this whole emotional scene. It was just so unrealistic. Why do they always do that? And the constant need for like a comedy sidekick? I don't even know. <laughs> Eventually, 25 years later in 1998, there was a documentary film called Wings of Hope by German director Werner Herzog. They revisited the crash site with her and it was the first time she'd been to the actual crash site since the whole ordeal and wasn't entirely sure she was going to be able to do it. She retraced the whole journey, even sitting in the same seat as 1971, 19F. That must have been so hard. It was. So many emotions. And this story has another super interesting fact here. The director, Werner, was actually at the airport the same time due to be on that very flight that Yuliani and her mother were on because he was supposed to be scouting for a movie he was doing nearby. What are the chances? I know, but at the last minute, there were cancellations and itinerary, cha itinerary changes and he didn't board that flight. <sighs> By the way, Lanza Airlines closed down after this crash. He went a few days afterwards to film Aguirre Wrath of God and was filming only a few rivers away whilst Yuliane was fighting for survival. Yuliane accredits Wings of Hope with coming to terms with her ordeal and credits it to allowing her to return back to Panguana in 2000 and to take on her parents' dream. It also allowed Yuliane to write about her ordeal. For so long, she just wanted to have her maiden name to be known, but since she's released her book, she freely now uses her married name of Diller. Also, Greta Thunberg move out of the way because check this quote out. <laughs> in the lonely nights I passed in the forest, I said to myself, if I survive this, I will make something important for humanity and nature. Those are great words, but only words. And up until now, I've been thinking, have I achieved this or not? And that is another way of feeling guilty. So now she's gone back like Simba to take on her parents' kingdom and claim her rightful place as badass nature lady. <laughs> Much respect to her. Um, uh, where can everyone find out more about Giuliani? Well, you can buy her book named When I Fell From The Sky from Amazon or online, and you can watch Wings of Hope on YouTube. The book apparently goes into a lot of detail of before and after the crash, more than the crash itself, including her work with Panguana. I haven't read it, but it's what I gathered from the reviews online. I actually sat and trolled through 205 reviews, reading every single one of them. But as for the documentary, Wings of Hope, I got a slight shock because she speaks German throughout it, which I know isn't entirely shocking, but she grew up in Peru. I was just expecting it to be Spanish mm, is all. Yeah. I mean, they have it in English translation, but you can hear her speaking German under the English translation. Anywho, there's loads more details in the documentary and she meets one of the fishermen who find her. It's really interesting. You should check it out. Okay. 
Go check it out, people. So that's pretty much it for the crazy life story of Juliane Kupke, one of my favorite survivor stories. I just didn't know what happened after it until I took a look at this story and it's been such a wild ride for me to read up on. If you want to hear more, please subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also leave us a review. If you want to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, you can find us at Not Me, Not Today Podcast, or check us out online. Just head to www.notmenottodaypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to send us an email at notmenottodaypodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, stay alive. Bye. Bye. Not Me, Not Today Podcast. <laughs>